Hey, my name's Emma. Hey, my name's Maddie. And you're listening to The Pilot's Pandemic. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Airfare is the only 100% plant-based, no sugar added, high fiber and protein, actually healthy pouch fit for your flight. So Emma, when was the last time you felt good about snacking? Honestly, mm, I don't know. Come on, you think a little bit harder. Well, okay. When we were in Florida on our way back, when we ate all of our airfare pouch in one sitting, I honestly, I did not feel bad about that. Like I did myself a favor. I felt good. Like knowing that our snacks were healthy and also my stomach didn't hurt, which is like a big sign for me that it's good and healthy. Yeah. I didn't feel the bloat. That's see, I can go out throughout my day, but I know I ate something bad when I got the bloat. Yeah. That's a definite cue for me too. So what was your what do you think like your favorite snack was that you tried? Oh God, I have so many favorites, which I did save three of mine. I will just say I saved three. I pocketed three from Maddie. I was like, she's mine. And I um, saved them for Betty Bye and ate them then. I saved them. But my favorites are shit. I love the the Nunu bar, the Wildberry nut bar. Ooh, that one is so good. Um, oh, and then the savory. See, this is what I love about like airfare is, you know how a lot of the times I feel like if you're getting like a healthy bar, they don't really have like a savory. There's not like a savory option. Um, yeah, they don't but, think about the savory side usually when they, when I think about protein bars are always sweet, but it's so nice like with airfare that they have both savory and sweet. Exactly. Exactly. Cause I'm a savory, like I love sweet. I definitely have a sweet tooth, but I'm a savory girl. So obviously I loved the bear bar. That was gas. Um, it was very like cheesy. If you like a cheesy, like if you like anything cheesy, Oh my God, it was so good. And then the nothing but the mango, which are mango slices. So Mm -hmm. amazing. Those are my favorite see yeah oh I ate those I before uh, we went to I Florida. was gonna say I was like if those were in the box like why did we not fight over them because we definitely fought over the kale chips because I definitely <laughs> ate them before I even saw you I was like you know what these look right up my alley nom 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 they're mine yeah, but because that's my favorite too I did I did but hey you got the you got the chipotle avocados okay Okay. I let you have those. I tried those. Yeah. But my favorite was the pizza almonds. I love me a little pizza flavor almond and they do it like so perfectly. It tastes almost like an Italian like sausage on a pizza. Like Mm. it encompasses like that whole flavor. I don't know how to explain it, but oh, my favorite. That's like my go-to one that I tell my husband, like every time we get the airfare, I'm like, we have to have that one. And then 
PB and J, the Jones bar. I actually ate this like a couple of weeks ago when I was going up in the Cirrus with a friend and I was like, oh my gosh, I wish I had more. They're so good. Literally tastes like a PB and J sandwich. Oh, 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 don't let me forget the, the GoPal savory pumpkin seeds. Have you tried those Maddie? No. Oh my God. If, okay. They're not like the kind of pumpkin seeds that you're thinking of, like the big, like dried out white ones. They're like small green pumpkin seeds and they are so good. If you like citrus, a little bit of citrus, a little bit of salt, a little bit of cumin, a little bit of, um, I think actually it's not cumin. I think it's, what is it, Maddie? It's like turmeric, turmeric. So good. So good. But I can well, literally, my mouth is, I'm like I know, salivating like, right now. We could talk about the snacks all day long because they have 50 different snacks to choose from. Um, but we will just let, leave you guys with our 50% off code of your first pouch. It's Pilots Podcast. So use that code at airfarepouch.com and you will get 50% off your first purchase. Hey y'all, welcome back to this week's episode of the Pilots Pandemic. You're here with your host, Emma, and our lovely co-host, Maddie. What's up, guys? And today we're joined by Emily Heron, you said. Is that how you say it? I always mess up right at the beginning. (laughs) Yes, Emily Heron, that's me. Okay, and you might know her as Emily at the airport on Instagram. She has quite a large following. So Emily, give yourself a little bit of an introduction. Yeah, well, thank you guys so much for having me today. Um, As Emma said, my name is Emily Heron, and I am an airport manager at a general aviation airport in Kentucky. And I've been uh, in airport management for about two years now, full time. Um, Previously had a career in education for about 10 years, but I grew up around aviation, has been a part of my life since uh, well before I was born. We, uh, my family has a Piper J3 Cub. That has been in our family for 72 and a half-ish years. And my grandfather purchased that when my dad was just a couple of months old. So our cub has been a huge part of our life and a huge part of my life. So growing up, uh, I was around flying a lot and I absolutely loved it, but certainly never thought it was going to be anything I wanted to make a career out of. And um, it wasn't until I was an adult that as I kind of got involved with my local airport board in my hometown, I uh, decided that I I really loved public service airports, public use airports, and I wanted to see if there was any way I could have a job at the airport or make a career out of that. And then an opportunity came available and I got a job as an airport manager and I have loved every minute of it. It's been a little crazy. Um, it's, I started about two weeks before COVID hit. So, uh, things were a little, a little rocky there for a few weeks at the beginning of my career, but, um, things have settled down, especially in the GA world. And, uh, we are, uh, yeah, it's, it's been great. So I, I absolutely love it and, um, happy to share my experiences and kind of spread the, spread the message of aviation and especially general aviation over on the Instagram. And I enjoy that. So, yeah. Well, great. We, uh, that's kind of like what drew me to your Instagram when I first started following Emily is like, you, you're an airport manager, like you said, which is such like a different path. And Emma and I love to find people who are not doing 
just the airlines because I think that's usually the path that people go once they get into aviation. So kind of expand on your story of how like you started because you definitely had like a career before you even got into aviation. So I think some of our followers would probably want to know like what you were doing before and then kind of how you got introduced to becoming the airport manager that you are now. Yeah. So as I said, I worked in education before I uh, worked full time at the airport and I loved my job. I actually was not a teacher, but I worked with the lower income students and families and worked in an elementary school for about seven years. And then I worked at a middle school for two years and I loved the kids that I worked with. I loved my coworkers, but my job was not something I was necessarily super passionate about. It was a good job and it was fulfilling and rewarding and I enjoyed it, Um, but I, I wasn't, it wasn't, you know, my passion. And I just kind of always knew that this wasn't the job I wanted to make a career out of. So I didn't know, you know, what that was ever going to look like. But as I said, I was asked to be on the airport board, which I know airport boards or board of directors, airport commission, it's different in every state. But in Kentucky, we have airport boards, every public use airport has to have a board of directors that is kind of the governing body of the airport. And so I was asked to be on the airport board just because people in my community knew that I was a pilot. Um, I don't live in the same community that I grew up in. So uh, people didn't know me as a pilot as they did in my hometown, but the community I live in is where my husband is from. And so we, um, there was a couple of people that knew I was a pilot and knew I, I liked aviation. So they asked me to be on the board. And I said yes. And then a year later, I became the chairman of the board or chairwoman. And I served as the chairwoman of the board for two years. And that was kind of when my um, eyes, I think, were opened to the world of public use airports and general aviation airports. So I grew up, like I said, flying our family cub, but I grew up flying it on backcountry grass strips, not necessarily backcountry like Utah backcountry, but um, or Alaska. But I grew up in Florida, so everything was pretty pretty flat and level. But grass strips, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, is where I grew up flying. So I went to the you know GA airport in my hometown when I needed to practice landing on pavement. And that was few and far between. I hated it. I did not like landing on pavement. So we didn't go there very often. The fuel was more expensive and uh, I didn't really know anybody over there. I had my crowd, my dad's friends and the people that we knew at our grass strip that we flew out of. And so that was kind of where we stayed and, and hung out and had our little community. So I didn't know much about the world of public use airports. I knew a lot about private airstrips, but not public use airports. So when I got on the airport board, that's when I kind of started learning about all of that and where the funding comes from and how you pay for all of the things. And, you know, pavement is not cheap and neither is literally anything else on an airport. And so, you know, where, how do you, how do you pay for that? How does a small town or a small community keep up and maintain an airport? And well, the answer is you don't typically, we get a lot of funding from other places. But um, I of course had no idea about any of that. Even as a pilot, I had been a pilot and around aviation my entire life and I had no idea how any of that worked. So it was really eye-opening for me to get to kind of see that side of things and 
I just loved it. I, I loved going and meeting with different people um, from the state aviation department and uh, you know, getting to network with other professionals in the aviation community, other people who were managing or on the board of directors at other airports in the state of Kentucky, and just kind of really decided that if I could figure out a way to do that and get paid for it, I would. At the time, when I became the chairwoman, I was working full time um, at the middle school, and so you know, I would I would. Go to go to work in the morning at 7:30. I would get off at 3:15, pick up my son from school, and then a lot of times we would drive out to the airport and spend an hour or two going over grant paperwork or checking on fuel, doing quality control checks for the fuel tanks. Because at the airport I was at at the time, we did not have an airport manager. There was not a paid staff member there, so uh, it was kind of up to the airport board to do all of those things and take care of all those things. So. I, uh, I I ended up doing a lot of those things and kind of taking on a lot of those duties. And again, like I said, I just I just kind of found out that I, I really enjoyed it and I loved it. And I wanted to be at the airport more than I was uh, for without, you know, sacrificing my family and <laughs> my free time. So um, an opportunity came open at an airport in a neighboring community and I took it. And so I'm, I'm here and I absolutely love the general aviation community. Um, I, again, just like Maddie said, you know, especially being on social media, I'm finding there are so many people who, when they think of airports, they think of, you know, Hartsville Jackson and Atlanta or mm -hmm. JFK or, you know, LAX. So those are airports, right? You have control towers and you have people out there marshalling big giant jets everywhere and, all of these things, you know, multiple runways and a lot of people just in, you know, the general public don't know about small airports. They don't know about general aviation airports and the purpose they serve and how we serve our community. Even people I was, I was finding people in my own community had no idea we even had an airport. And then when they found wow. out we did have an airport, they had no idea. Oh, there's 25 airplanes at your airport. Oh my gosh. Oh my I had no idea, you know, or people fly jets into this airport, businesses fly into this airport. I mean, people just, they just don't know because it's not something that they've ever been exposed to. And that's kind of what started driving my, I think my posting on Instagram and kind of wanting to share a little bit more about that side of things is just, um, you know, from an advocacy standpoint, and you guys know this with, you know, all of the work that you do in, in mental health, but if, if people don't know about something, then they can't be for something. So if, if they don't know there's a problem, they can't, we can't fix the problem. We can't solve the problem. So in aviation, especially, especially in, in public use aviation, of course, where everything goes through the government, we get our funding from the FAA or the state aviation department. And then we also get funding from our local government and the local government as same with the state government and everybody else, they work for the people. So if you convince the people, then you convince the politicians. And so that's kind of where I started. I got really tired trying to convince, you know, for lack of a better way to describe this, I got tired of trying to convince the panel of old men that were sitting in front of me at a, you know, county fiscal court meeting that our airport was important. So I stopped trying to convince them and I started trying to convince the people that they work for. And that's, you know, I think been, it's, well, it's been more fun for sure, but, you know, <laughs> allowing people in our community and elsewhere 
to know how important our GA communities, our, our GA airports are and how they serve the community, what they do, what their purpose is, and that it's it's not exactly the same as a, as a big airport, but just because we don't have commercial service doesn't mean we're not important, so. Yeah, amen to that. Um, I can kind of relate to you in the sense of like growing up around planes, but I grew up around a general aviation airport and it wasn't mm -hmm. until I started flying and working towards my private pilot license that I realized oh my gosh there's so much more to this and even just getting on a commercial flight I was so mind blown because my eye it was like your third eye opens to all this new knowledge and aviation becomes super fascinating. So I think it's cool that you're giving a platform to general aviation and general use airports because they're important. That's where I started flight school. That's where me and my dad used to go every weekend that he had off. We were always flying the cub, but mm -hmm. speaking of cubs, that's kind of why yeah. I started following you on Instagram and kind of another way that I related to your story and you just as a person and as a creator. Um, but tell us a little bit about your grandfather's cub and how that was passed through your the I I stumbling all my words <laughs> to kind of explain how that was passed down through the generations and tell us a little bit about why that sparked your love for flying or how that got you into aviation sure so my grandfather purchased our cub in 1949 um my grandpa was in the army the Army Air Corps, actually, so the Air Force before it was the Air Force, and he was, he's a, from Kentucky, grew up in northern Kentucky, but he was stationed at Maxwell Air Force, or no, I guess it was Maxwell Army Base, I don't know, something, he was stationed in Montgomery, Alabama, I don't want to get the wrong uh, base name, but he was, he was in Montgomery, Alabama, which is where my grandmother was from, and they got married, and started a family. And then when he got out of the army, he knew that he wanted to learn to fly. He was not a pilot in the Air Corps, but he obviously was around it a lot and exposed to it a lot and just, you know, decided he wanted to be a pilot. He wanted to learn how to fly. So as soon as he got out of the army, he took flight lessons. Of course, back then, pretty much anybody who went to train how to fly was going to train in a Piper J3 Cub. And so he learned to fly, became actually a commercial pilot and a flight instructor. And then he decided that he wanted to purchase his own airplane. Uh, there is the civilian pilot training program, which was kind of the government's training program to train pilots during the war. And that, gosh, got started probably in the late 30s, early 40s. And then it was, um, I don't want to say disband, but it they, they were done with it in the late 40s, I believe around 48 or 49. So when that ended, then a lot of flight schools who were working with the civilian pilot training program had all of these airplanes, mostly Cubs. Um, so our Cub was built in 1946, of course came off the factory floor in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, where all Piper Cubs were made. Mm -hmm. And then it went down to Valdosta, Georgia Southern Airways purchased it for training purposes. So it, it was down there training student pilots for about three years. And then they had a big sale in the summer of 1949 after the training program um, ended. And so my grandfather took a flight from Montgomery, Alabama over to Valdosta, Georgia, and 
said, I want to buy a cup. And he forked over $725. Just so <laughs> if you can imagine. Yeah. I know. Which was, I know, was a lot more money, you know, then I than bet. it is now. Yeah. But still, I don't think uh, inflation-wise even it probably amounts to the same oh, as what yeah. our cup would be worth right now if we sold it. But anyways, yeah. so he purchased it in uh, 19, June of 1949 and then flew her home to Montgomery. And shortly after, took my dad, who was a baby. He was about two months old. So he took his first ride, airplane flight and in general, but his definitely his first ride in the cub, sitting in my grandmother's lap in the back seat. And the rest was kind of history. Uh, my dad and our cub, we just, it's her tail number is in November 6745 Hotel. So we call her 45 Hotel a lot. And so um, they kind of formed an unbreakable bond, the two of them. My grandfather was a crop duster after he got out of the army. Um, he did some flight instruction as well. But the cub was kind of a, you know, fly for fun. Um, he didn't use the cub for flight instruction or anything. He, he taught at flight schools and used flight school aircraft. But um, when my dad was in high school, he, you know, of course, started taking lessons. My grandfather taught him how to fly. And um, he was planning to solo in the cub, I think, around his 16th birthday or shortly after. And then a tornado actually came through that spring and she was tied down outside in Southern Indiana. A tornado came through and kind of damaged, well, severely damaged the right wing. And so she couldn't fly. So he had to, I think he ended up soloing in a Piper Colt maybe and doing the rest of finishing his flight instruction out in a Piper Colt. But my grandfather decided, hey, if you know we wanna get her back up to speed, I will gift this airplane to you and she will be yours if you help me do all the work. So my dad said, deal. And they worked for the next several years, re completely recovering all of the fabric on our cub. And then of course, um, had to get, probably had to just get a new wing. I'm not sure if they purchased a new wing or completely repaired it, but Anywho, so they spent uh, the next few years doing that until well into my dad's college years. And then after they finished that, then he um, flew her pretty much everywhere he could <laughs> from then on out. He's recovered the airplane four and a half times. So we're kind of actually midway through our fifth full recover since our family has owned her. Well, it's her fifth full recover in general because she was never recovered until um we owned her, but what is a, what's a recover mean for those of us? Who yeah. Don't, Cause I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that just sounds like we recovered her from the bottom of the ocean. Um, no. So fiber cubs are fabric covered airplanes. So it's metal tubing wrapped in material and fabric. Um, the material that's used now is a polyester blend. It used to actually be cotton. So it used to be an organic material and they would use butyrate dope, which is, the paint, the mixture that the paint went in and that would kind of seal it, seal mm -hmm. that cotton so that it wasn't just like a t-shirt, you know, on a wrapped around metal tubing. And then, um, but the problem with the organic material was that it did not last very long, especially if it was left out in the elements. So if you did not have a, a good hanger or if you lived anywhere near salt water or snow and salt and ice and all the things that go with that, 
then your fabric was not going to be in great condition for very long. So they airplanes had to be recovered, which just means you take all the fabric off and you put new fabric on and repaint it. Um, I would say probably every probably five to 10 years back in the day. But then sometime, I, I think around in the 60s or 70s, they started using synthetic fabric. So they started using polyester and they have there's a couple of different systems you can use to do um, fabric work. Um, but basically the process is somewhat similar for all the different systems. It just kind of, there's different steps to, um, to certain ones, but yeah, you take the fabric, wrap it around, glue it on, um, you know, glue it to the metal, to the metal tubing, and then you iron it. That's what pulls it taut um, to get it where it's not, you know, just loose fabric hanging there. And then you put some reinforcing tape over it and then you paint it several yeah, primer and then your color. Um, so a few different layers of paint go on there and then you have an airplane. So it's a very um, tedious art and very rewarding. My dad, like I said, has done it since he was in his teens and he's he recovered our airplane several times. But then when he, he actually had a career in education as well, he was a football coach and uh, retired as a high school principal. And after he retired, then he actually started his own business doing fabric work on airplanes. So he's very experienced and he does an amazing job. And I hope someday that I can do uh, fabric work like he does. But I just kind of started on my journey of learning how to do that last winter when we decided to start on the recover process for four five hotel um my dad is in great shape but you know he's in his 70s and we knew that um i needed to learn how to do it because it's not cheap to pay somebody to do it we know how much we charge <laughs> so we um I, I wanted to learn it was time for me to be able to learn how to do all of that and we didn't want to wait you know another five ten years when my dad's pushing 80 years old and so we wanted to, to go ahead and do that now while everybody's in good health and feeling great. And then that way, the next time it needs to be recovered, my dad can be sitting uh, in a recliner in the corner of the shop, bossing me around and I can do all the work. So yeah, that's our hope in, in 20 years. <laughs> yeah. I kind of watched you um, through your stories, like sharing about like the fab work that you've done. And Emma's going to ask your question on that. Um, just kind of, cause it's such a, a different thing to do. Like you said, your dad got into it after his career in, in football and stuff, but, um, and I think it's very intimidating. So I'll let him ask that question, but I wanted to ask you before that, like, um, with your cub, because this is like the most popular airplane, I feel like on Instagram, at least for the people that I follow, like everyone has a cup. I'm like, this is like the kids plane and Emma has one too. And I'm like, dude, are only the cool people fly cups. So um, you get like a lot of questions about your plane and like people wanting to like buy a cup or, um, did you know it was like super popular plane? Um, and what do people like send you in your DMS about, about your right. plane? Yeah. So growing up, you know, I didn't know 
that cubs were so popular. Now I knew obviously that there were other cubs and I knew that, you know, all, I think one of the reasons why the cub is so, I don't even know that it's necessarily so popular, but it's so recognizable because they yeah. all have the same paint job. Mm-hmm. You know, you see the yellow and you see the black lightning <laughs> bolt stripe and mm-hmm. you automatically know that's a cub. I mean, you could see a Cessna and be like, uh, uh, you know, from far away, you could be like, is it a 172? Is it a 182? I'm not really sure. I'd have to get closer to see, you know. And so, I mean, the the cub, you know, right away when you see a cub, you know, that's a cub. Mm-hmm. But I, <clears throat> excuse me. So I knew as a child, you know, that it was, it was cool that we had an airplane. None of my friends had airplanes. Um, the people that I knew that flew were all my dad's age, you know, and of course some of them had kids, but most of their kids weren't really into flying. And a lot of them were older than me. So I didn't have any friends or peers who had an airplane in their family or flew airplanes regularly. So I was kind of the the odd duck. And then of course, not only did we have an airplane, we had a yellow airplane. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it was like, oh, there's Emily with the yellow airplane. And and then my dad actually recovered when I was maybe in elementary, middle school, he recovered a, another cub of a friend of ours and he just did it in our garage. So of course he'd pull it out of the garage and we'd have this yellow fuselage, you know, cub fuselage in our driveway. People would drive by. My best friend actually from high school, uh, she lived down the street from me and we did not go to the same elementary school. So we didn't know each other until we got to middle school. But when we met, she knew me as the house with the man with the yellow airplane. <laughs> because that was our house in the neighborhood. We had the yeah. yellow airplane in the driveway. So, you know, it was it was a, a recognizable thing, I guess, in that. But I certainly didn't think everyone wants a cub. Everyone has a cub. Everyone flies cubs. Like that wasn't something I thought was popular or cool. Um, once I kind of started getting, you know, older and, you know, of course, realizing, you know, that there's, they have this whole thing every year in Pennsylvania called, um, oh gosh, what's it called? Oh shoot. Something journey. Do you know what it's called, Emma, where you go, everyone goes back in June to Lock Haven. I can't think of the name of it. I honestly, um, I know what you're talking about. Cause my dad's yeah. spoken about it a lot. Sentimental, do- sentimental journey. It's called sentimental journey. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I kept wanting to say spirited journey and I was like, that's not right. Sentimental (laughs) journey. So yes, you know, it's, it's like a whole thing. And I mean, every aircraft owner or every aircraft type kind of has their cult following, you know, but cubs are definitely at a a next level, I would say. But yeah, when I first started, you know, I was on Instagram. Gosh, I've been on Instagram for 10 years now. But, you know, for a long time, I just was on there as I posted pictures of my kid and what I had for dinner and like everybody else, you know, just random stuff. So about a year ago, I guess, is when I kind of started really deciding I wanted to make my Instagram about aviation and kind of have that focus. And so, of course, one of the first people that I see and get on there, not just on Instagram, but in my um, Facebook groups that I'm a part of, Piper J3 Cub Facebook group and the Tail Draggers United Facebook group, um, was Joe Casanza, who is bananas oh, on Instagram. And I know. And I'm, oh, I'm always, I listen, I have met some amazing people through Instagram some of whom I've gotten to meet in real life, some of whom I have not yet, but they're also daggum freaking talented photographers. And it's so I annoying. Know. Oh my gosh. His <laughs> videos like- are 
Woo, she yeah, I know his I, his videos, his pictures, and you know I message we message back and forth, um, you know often about different stuff, especially about the Cubs, and and I'm always like, Joe, how did you get that? Like, how did you teach me how to edit? And he's like, I just watched, learned it on YouTube, and I'm like, well, I can't learn like that on YouTube. Like, someone <laughs> needs to teach me. I need you to come and give me a master class, please, on how to edit my. I bought a nice camera, like, but I don't know how to use it. <laughs> yeah, like setting up all the cameras that he has, because I know it's like he's got like a spec on every tip that he can find. Yeah, but it's like, whoa. See, here's his trick, though. I'm pretty sure. I don't think he, I don't think he does. I think he just moves it. He has, I'm pretty sure he only has, and I could be wrong. So Joe, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry if I'm <laughs> speaking incorrectly, but I'm pretty sure he has one 360 camera and he just puts yep. it in different places on yeah. different flights. I've so then actually, he has, I've done like deep ass digging about this because I'm so like enamored by it, but it, I think that <laughs> is, there's like a specially made camera. It's like designed specifically for being mounted on an airplane but it does that yeah. 360 thing it's yeah. crazy now, I have a I have a 360 camera actually and we used it um when my dad and I went on our trip that we took last fall um I, I, I don't know if we'll talk about that but anyways I I use that to kind of capture film because the great thing about that is you can mount it. I mounted it and flight flicks makes a special pole mount specifically for that. And it goes on the struts and then it kind of sticks way out. And it's really nerve wracking at first because you're sticking this like $500 camera just out on the end of a metal pole sticking out on your wing. And you're like, yes. is it going to hold it? Is it going to fall 3000 <laughs> feet? And I'm never going to see it again. Right. Yeah. yeah it's, it's <laughs> kind of scary but it hey we 1600 nautical miles and that bad boy never uh never wavered so but it's great because you can get shots of your airplane you can get shots of the terrain you can get shots of all the different places you know with just one camera which is which is lovely but you know joe joe will mount his on the rudder he'll mount it on the nose he'll mount it on the wingtip he'll mount it sticking below the wing so he gets that angle of the wheel pants because he's obsessed with his wheel pants and um <laughs> so you know he he's he's great but but yeah so kind of getting back to to your question just you know there there's definitely a, a large group of people who not only people who own cubs and fly cubs but i think just people who would would want to own a cub and want to fly cubs so i definitely get messages and dms frequently from people who are in the market for a cub who want to buy a cub who just bought a cub probably out of a barn somewhere and now they don't know what to do with it um, or how to get it back going so i mean i get messages frequently about fabric work and hey could you take a look at this for me you know which I am not an AMP I'm not an IA so I always refer people back to their local folks you know I'm like okay if you need a fabric repair job I'm happy to take a look at that for you and I can maybe give you some sort of an estimate of like what might need to be done I you typically well no I always send it to my dad and then we talk about it and make the assessment I'm I'm not experienced enough yet to be making assessments on my own but um, you know, we, we are not, neither of us are AMP. So we work closely with our IA to sign off on all of our work. Everything that is done, any type of repair job or recover job has to be signed off by an IA. So 
we, you know, work closely with ours. So then if, if someone from California is messaging me about their cub and what I think they should do, you know, most of the time I'm going to refer them back to their local AMP or their local IA to um, take a look at that and, and kind of go from there. Uh, and also, I don't know what people in California charge to do fabric work, probably not uh, the same as we charge here in Kentucky. So, um, Probably a Anywho, I, I, yeah. Oh, I'm positive. Yeah. So I hate to, you know, I hate to give an estimate and then they go to someone in California and they're like, oh my God, that's outrageous. Emily at the airport said it would only cost this much, you know, so I don't, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want my name thrown around there like that. Yeah. But, but anywho, so we, I, I do get messages about that, you know, often. And then I, I get a lot of messages from people who are just what I would say, cub enthusiasts, you know, they, they just love cubs. They're just, it's a, it's a unique, you know, a vintage airplane. You can't, you know, you could go buy a brand new 172 if you wanted to, but you can't buy a brand new cub. They haven't made them since 1947. And so um, it's, you know, they're, they're kind of their own little, their own little cult and people um, are always interested in them and, and happy to see them. And so I do get a lot of messages, you know, people just saying, oh, your airplane's so beautiful. And um, and then, of course, you know, people have always different people maintain their airplanes in different ways. So, you know, I see a lot of people who post videos and pictures and whatnot flying cubs around. And I'm like, I wouldn't step foot in that cub because it looks like it hasn't been um, recovered in about 50 or 60 years. And I'm not OK with that. Yeah. And so, you know, I we. I don't expect every airplane to be maintained exactly the way we take care of ours, but um, knowing what I know about fabric work probably gives me a little bit of perspective too on on what's I would consider safe and what's probably you know playing with a little bit of fire. So um, we take really good care of our airplane. We take a lot of pride in. Um, obviously, wanting to make sure we have a safe aircraft to fly in. I fly my eight-year-old. Uh, frequently, so I would never put my child in an airplane that I didn't think was safe. But also, we we like her to look pretty, and uh, so you know, we we take good care of her. So we I get you know messages and comments occasionally on on those types of things. But but yeah, people people love a cub for sure. So Emily, why I love you as a guest is because you say so many things that I want to unpack and I want to respond to <laughs> because I feel like there there's so many similarities, but. I, I think it's funny that you kind of mentioned it's a little bit of a cult, the cub cult. My, I drive my dad's car and the license plate is literally cub. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. Makes sense. Like, like a very, very, is everything very, in your house yellow. Yeah. We have so much cub memorabilia. It is it, like the cub club. Like we're a part of that. Mm -hmm. Everything. The first binder that I took with me to flight school is a yellow binder that has like the bear on it. Um, and that was one of the first binders I used now me and all my siblings fight over that thing. So I don't know who has it, but probably my brother and my sister at this point. So it's it's just That's getting hilarious. passed around. Yeah. Yeah. So we had to like recently we had to divvy in all the um, cub stickers because they're like, right. Those are like cash. Those are literally gold right. in my house. So, right. But kind of going back to talking about the fabric work, which I think I've, that's always been so interesting to me as a child, I have never been able to truly understand no matter how many times my dad explained it to me, the concept of fabric literally tightly taut wrapped around like 
struts. And it's just, it's mm -hmm. so incredible to me, but because of that, I can imagine there's so many things about doing that and within that process that are probably really intimidating. Um, is, mm -hmm. was there anything that you came across that was super intimidating or is there any other work that you do kind of in-house? I know my dad was kind of always tinkering on our cub. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, we, we do lots of things I would say in-house just because is as qualified and um, as as much work and care as it takes to become an AMP, and we don't claim to be AMPs. There is no one on the planet that knows our airplane like my dad does, um, and I hope I am on that level at some point. Um, I will say the process that I went through last winter of doing the recovery that we did on the fuselage and the landing gear gave me an entirely new appreciation for the airplane. I mean, I am like, I feel like I was, you know, like close friends with her my whole life. And now I'm like, we're connected on a different level. I've seen her insides. <laughs> like I know what They're she like looks Siamese like. Siamese twins. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's different. And I, I have a little bit more of an understanding and appreciation of the relationship that my dad has had with her for so long, but no, definitely went um, to first base. <laughs> 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 for sure probably pass that but anywho um yeah it's you know it's a, a a different it's a different type of work I would say you know when when we did the process last year my dad did most of the work on the fuselage um my dad and I live an hour apart so he lives in one town which is where the cub is based um at the airport in in his town and then I live an hour away so I would drive over every weekend, every Saturday, sometimes and stay Saturday and Sunday to work on the airplane. And um, so we decided that the best way for me to learn the process was to take a smaller piece and do the whole thing from start to finish, do um, stripping the fabric, doing the recover and um, all the gluing, the taping and everything involved with that. And then also doing the painting, the sanding, everything. So I did the landing gear um, because that was kind of something that, you know, dad could work on the fuselage during the week and getting everything done there. And then I could come in on the weekends and get a lot done on the landing gear. So it's basically two big triangles are what the landing gear looks like on a cub. And um, so, you know, we, I, I had to learn you know, the hard way, a lot of times, of, well, I wrapped that too far, or I didn't cut that down enough, or I cut that down too much. And now it shrunk, because I ironed it. And now it's not enough. And so, you know, there's definitely, well, I also did the door, uh, the bottom door, but there was, there was multiple times that I would, you know, wrap the fabric around get it glued down. And then I would have to make a cut for something. And I made the wrong cut or did the wrong thing. And then you have to rip it off and start over. <laughs> And that's really frustrating. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but it, it's, it's part of it. And I knew that I was learning, you know, I knew that I, you know, anytime you're doing something and you're working alongside of someone who is what I would say an expert in their field, and you're a novice or an apprentice, then it's really easy to feel defeated or kind of feel like, oh my gosh, I suck at this. You know, like I am not good whatsoever because I don't know it the way my dad does. I mean, good grief, he's done that specific airplane four times. Not, not to mention he's done other people's cubs. He's done other airplanes. Like he's, he does this all the time. And so it comes very 
you know, easy to him because that's what he does every day. Um, so, you know, I, I, I had to learn not to get so intimidated by it. Um, and knowing that there was nothing I was going to do, you know, short of like setting it on fire or something that was going to, I wasn't going to break it. I wasn't, you know, if I messed up the fabric, we just ripped it off and started over. And that stinks because obviously at some point that starts costing you money and materials that you're wasting, but it's normal for that to happen somewhat. So um, I, I kind of had to get my, get my mind right about that and not compare yeah. myself to my dad and, and his level of work. But then, um, you know, I, I started to get the hang of it and it's very rewarding then when you finish a piece or you get something done and then you go, okay, how does it look? You know, and then my dad comes and looks at it and inspects it and he's like, yeah, that looks great. And I'm like, really? Oh my gosh, I did it. Okay. <laughs> um, I was very intimidated by the painting process because that was the part I thought I for sure was going to screw up. Like I thought I'm going to mess this up. This paint job is going to look horrible. And like our airplane has always looked immaculate. I cannot screw the paint up. You know, I have a really but specific I, question and I hate to cut you off, yeah. but I will forget. No, that's okay. So when you're painting this, I, I obviously the cub yellow, that's like a, it's a staple. It's a specific yellow. Yeah. Where do you get the paint? Do you have it made? Does it come specifically from like a certain manufacturer? Um, right. Is there like, do you mix it yourself? <laughs> well, yes and no. Um, no, we don't mix, mix the paint color necessarily by ourselves. But so as I said earlier, there's several different systems you can use to do fabric restoration. And um, so there's, um, now I'm going to forget the names of all of them. Um, polyfiber is probably the most, I would say the most popular one, the one you see the most because um, they have like a layer of silver and a layer of orange. They're like glue stuff is orange. So you see the fabric looking silver, then you see the fabric looking orange and then you get the paint on it and whatnot. Um, but the system that we use is called Superflight. So they are an excellent company. My dad has worked with them for years and years and years. And um, so that's, that's the system we use. That is where we get literally everything we need for the entire process. We get, we buy our fabric from Superflight. They, we buy our taping, we buy the glue. So they have a specific type of glue called U500 and you mix that with acetone. You dilute it down with acetone and use that for your glue to, you know, put the fabric on. Um, and then we buy our primer from them and our paint from them. So they have a specific yellow that is cup yellow. Um, so, so cool. <laughs> theor theoretically, if you, you know, if you looked at Superflight Cub Yellow and Polyfiber Cub Yellow or Stewart Systems Cub Yellow or Airtech Coatings Cub Yellow, they could all be just ever so slightly different, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, they're all obviously the same general cub. Yeah. Gotcha. So that is so yeah. cool to me. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. It does. So yeah, I was, I was super intimidated by the painting process, but um, I did mess up one thing because you use a, a spray gun and you have to wear the whole gear because it's very, um, it's not, it's not stuff you want to breathe in. So my dad has a paint booth in his shop. I had to put on the whole paint suit and then the like mask with the forced air breathing and all of that. So it's really intimidating because you've got to put all this gear on and then you get this spray gun. And my dad's like giving me a rundown of the gun. He's like, well, you just turn this little knob and it makes it the fan wider. And you turn this little knob and it makes the fan narrower. Do you want to do it like this? And I'm like, okay. And I think I tried it, tested it on a piece of cardboard first. And then 
So I did the first coat of primer and the primer I think turned out okay. And then when I got to the yellow, you have to sand in between all of these, um, you know, layers of paint. Then when I got to the yellow, the first one I did on one of them, I didn't have one of the settings on the spray gun turned the right way. And so it just ran. Like it was just like streaks of paint. And I was like, oh my God, what have I done? You know, and of course my dad comes in there. He's like, it's cool. We just wipe it off and try again. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's not so bad. Your so, dad's yeah, it was definitely- like a super chill guy. Like just, I love that he <laughs> is so calm about everything. Like, uh, yeah. I don't know, with my dad in him being a pilot, it was like, everything was like, you have to be perfect. So I think it's really well, cool see, that he was like so patient and also just very trusting. Like you got it, you know, you can do it too. Right. Was your dad an airline pilot? He was um, a bush pilot up or in Alaska. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I was going to say a lot of times that can be the difference too in professional pilots and people who fly for fun. I mean, the majority of my dad's flying other than he, he does have a commercial certificate. He actually flew um, jumpers when he was in his thirties um, he flew parachuters, um, and it was oh, a jump plane pilot, but so other than that, all of his flying has just been for fun. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and not that that doesn't mean he's not meticulous when he flies to be safe and all of those things, but like people but are trained, especially in the airline world or the professional pilot world, you're trained differently and everything is very precise and specific. Um, I think it was because know, my dad you know. was a cop before he was ah, a pilot. So it yeah, kind of makes sense. Helps. You know, you got to do it how it's supposed to be done. <laughs> but right. yeah. Oh yeah. Now, now my dad definitely wants things done correctly, but you know, he's, he's good about me as I'm learning and knowing if this isn't the end of the world, this isn't a life or death situation, we can fix it and it's fine. Well, okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I think, you know, that's probably why you've excelled so much and doing your own fabrication and stuff is because you've had your dad um be so forgiving I guess in a way yeah Mm -hmm. so that's awesome um I really liked watching you on your stories like sharing that because honestly you don't see a lot of women doing that either and there's not a lot of women in aviation so someone doing that shows other women that they are capable of doing that as well um Mm -hmm. but kind of like switching gears because I wanted to dive into you being an airport manager a little more what is like a day in the life of an airport manager? Like, what does your day-to-day look like? That's probably my most asked question. Um, I get that DM a lot too. Or, you know, when I, when I pull my audience, what do you guys want to see? What do you want me to make videos about? And everybody's like, just a day in the life of the airport manager. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, well, that could be 67 different videos because <laughs> it's different every day. Um, <laughs> which I guess that's good. That means I always have content to make. Um, but so, you know, it's not only is it different every day for me, but it's also different for every airport manager in every airport. There's a saying that says, you know, once you've been to one airport, you've only been to one airport. Every airport is different. (laughs) They're run differently. They have different, um, leadership structures. They have different amounts of staff. I mean, I'm, my airport actually is, I think we're in a really great position. We have a lot of support from our local government, or I actually am a, an employee of our city. So our, our city government owns, um, owns the land, but also um, runs the FBO. So I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm an airport manager slash FBO manager, um, but I, I don't, you know, work for, there's not, it's not a private FBO or a private company that runs the FBO. It's, it's the city. So um, 
we are, like I said, very supported by our local government, which is excellent. And they're, they're very encouraging and very supportive of the airport. But <clears throat> so, you know, I do, my staff and I take care of a lot of things. And some days that means me and some days it means my staff. So typically I have, I have two line technicians and typically they are the ones who do my fuel quality control checks. I shouldn't say my fuel quality control checks. They do the fuel quality control checks um, for the 100 low lead and the jet a so they go out in the mornings they read the meters and you know take we write down the numbers of of what's on our, our meters on our fuel and then they sump both of those tanks they sump the jet a truck that we have sump that tank and you know just make sure that our fuel is clean and clear and all of those things there's no water in it no junk in it and um we you know measure the measure the amount of fuel in the tanks a couple of times a week just to make sure we're not losing fuel and not aware of it things like that so they do that most days but now there's days when people are on vacation or they're off or like right now we're in transition we we had a staff member that took another job and so we've hired someone new but they haven't started yet so on monday it was just me there by myself with my secretary so i was out there some for the fuel tanks and doing you know the the fuel qc checks by myself um but that's not a it's not a thing i do all the time um but it's it's a, a thing that has to be done regardless of whether it's me or or my staff um airfield inspections um sometimes that's a little bit more involved sometimes it's just you know taking the car the Kubota up and down the runway taxiway kind of making sure there's nothing out of the ordinary no FOD which stands for foreign object debris making sure there's no uh you know big chunks of things laying around on the airport that could be harmful if an aircraft were to land and run over it or hit it or whatever um checking you know doing some quick spot checks of our perimeter fencing making sure there's no giant holes anywhere um, we have a, a lot of property and our fence line goes way, way, way out. And it would take me probably two hours to drive the entire fence line in our little Kubota, because that's the only way I can get to all of it when we're out in the country and we got a lot of cornfields and whatnot surrounding us. So um, that's not necessarily feasible to do daily, but we, we check those every once in a while and kind of check on those types of things. But the runway, taxiway, aircraft movement surfaces, those are the main things that we kind of keep an eye on uh, to make sure everything is clear. Um, a lot of what I do is marketing, public relations type stuff too, talking to people, planning events. We are gonna have a big Bonanza fly-in. Bonanza is another group of people that are cultish about their airplanes. And so they are gonna have a big old party called a beach bash at my airport at the end of April. So I've been doing a lot of meeting with people and planning for that event and making sure we're going to be able to accommodate all the airplanes that fly in and having things uh, for them to do while they're here. Um, I try to connect with the community. Like I said earlier, um, you can convince the politicians, but the best way to go is convincing the people that your airport is important and useful to your community whether people are pilots or not. And so um, I, you know, will be sometimes at the Rotary Club meeting or the Lions Club meeting or whatever else it is, um, just trying to kind of promote the airport to different community engagement groups. 
Um, I'm hoping to get to do more of that. Like I said, as I took my job, COVID started. So there was a period of time where I didn't really get to do that a whole lot. I did a couple of Zoom meetings with different places, but I'm, I'm hoping now that things have, um, you know, kind of settled down for the most part, as far as restrictions go, that I'm able to, you know, start getting into the schools and being at career days and things like that and talking to younger folks about um, careers in aviation. And uh, I work with the, our local community college has a flight school that they've just gotten started. So I work really closely with them and um, our local businesses, mechanics. We have an interior shop on our field. Um, so just kind of keeping in connection with them. Of course, we oversee all of the rent collection and payment of all of our tenants. And like today, I was looking over invoices that we were getting ready to mail out and making sure those were correct. And so, you know, some of it is just paperwork and kind of that type of thing, um, running a business and looking at the budget and I'm planning for my budget for next year because I've got to have that turned in next month to our city council. And so I'm, I'm looking over those things and saying, okay, well, where did we overspend this year? Where did we underspend? Where do we need to move money around? Where do we need to, what are we going to need to buy over the next five years? We're going to probably need a new lawnmower. So we need a budget for that. And, um, so yeah, it's a, it's a lot of, a little bit of everything um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, yesterday I was out there fueling airplanes. It was a beautiful day. And like I said, I was the only one there. So uh, we had two or three different airplanes come in that stopped for fuel. So I got them fueled up and um, some of it's moving airplanes, putting them back in the hangars when they're done and that type of thing. So, yeah. Dang. So it sounds like you have a very, you're like, you're a busy bee, a very busy bee. Yes. And you know, there's, there's days at my airport, like today was a slower day as far as aircraft um, go because it rained all day today. So we didn't have any, now we'll still get business traffic in typically, unless it's like thunderstorming or blizzard, but uh, we didn't have any business traffic in today, but we, you know, it wasn't a day we were going to have GA traffic. The flight school wasn't flying and, you know, there just wasn't, wasn't a lot going on today because of the weather, but we had bought some new furniture for our lobby that we needed to put together. So, and then I was working on a progress report for my supervisor to turn in to make sure that the city administration is aware of, of all the projects we've got going on. We're in the middle of a hangar build right now. So I'm kind of making sure things are going well with that, looking at, you know, how some of the invoices are coming in and I'm on the phone with the finance department, making sure things get, you know, going the right way for that. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely busy regardless of, of what's going on. Um, the airport sometimes isn't that busy, but I usually am regardless. I gotcha. Well, Always dang it. I, I like it. I like it though. I mean, I'm always, I feel like if you're not busy, what are you doing? You know what I mean? I feel right. like yeah. every single time I have too much free time, I'm like, I'm not doing enough. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I like Maddie said, we always love to highlight that there are more routes to a passionate aviation career other than the airline gig. Yeah. And Absolutely. obviously, like you were saying, you kind of grew up in with aviation, but you, none of your family was in the airlines. I mean, that yeah. being said, what was like the final tip off that made you decide that maybe that wasn't the career for you? Honestly, that was never a career I thought I did want to do. Um, so when I was very young, 
the only aviation career that I can say I remember wanting to do and wanting to be was I was bound and determined when I was about six years old that I was going to be the first woman Blue Angel pilot. Um, I lived, I grew up very close to Pensacola, Florida. So the Blue Angels are, you know, right there from Pensacola. So we saw the beach show every year in July. We saw the homecoming show every year in November. I absolutely love the Blue Angels. I thought they were amazing. And I, you know, at the time, gosh, when I was that old, I don't even know that women could be fighter pilots or maybe they had just been able to be fighter pilots in the early, late eighties, early nineties. I don't remember when that happened, but Anywho, there was certainly hadn't been any women in flying positions um, in any of those, you know, demonstration teams at that point. And I'm so thankful that there have been now and that little girls get to see that as an inspiration. But I thought I was going to be the first one. And then when I got a little bit older um, and I learned that there was this thing called boot camp that you had to go through to get into the Navy, I was like, never mind. <laughs> I don't want to do a bunch of push-ups to have to be in the Blue Angels. That sounds terrible. So um, after that, I just, you know, I, I knew I had a basic understanding of how flying airliners went. And to me, it sounded like you climbed in the big airplane and you sat up front and you pushed a few buttons and that was mostly it. And I, I don't think my assessment was too far off. Um, not that it doesn't take a lot of skill and a lot of, it does. I'm not saying I could get on a Boeing 747 and fly it right now. I could not. So that's not what I mean. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's climbing up to altitude, 37,000 feet, and then you go for a long, long time, and then you go back down. And then you wait for a while, and you get in an airplane, and you climb to 37,000 feet, and you fly for a long time, and then you go down. That sounded boring to me. Um, that's not the kind of flying I grew up doing, and it's not the kind of flying I wanted to do. I also did not want the schedule of what um, is the demanding schedule of an airline pilot. I, I didn't want to be gone for several days. Um, yeah. I had a friend who had a mom that was a flight attendant and she was a single mom and, um, you know, had a very successful career as a flight attendant. And, you know, I, she had to, of course, have like a nanny um, because she didn't have family close that could watch her daughter when she was gone. But, you know, I just, I didn't want that schedule. Um, I wanted more of a a normal, you know, I guess nine to five kind of schedule. Um, so I, I knew that wasn't really ever a path that I thought I wanted to take. Um, you know, part of me now looks back and, and wishes that I would have considered looking into colleges with aviation programs um, on the airport management side of things. But I honestly never once in my little pretty head thought that that was didn't ever even think about that as a possibility. Never even thought about that, that that was something that someone did. And if I'm being honest, and I know this is a little bit off topic, but I think a lot of people don't think about that. I just went to the Women in Aviation Conference and it was a great conference. And it was, I was glad I got to meet some great people and see a lot of people, but there was no airport management representation at that conference. And it's very heavily geared towards professional pilots. And it's almost like a, just a huge networking event for people in uh, professional pilot roles, but there was people, there was air traffic controllers, there was dispatchers, there was military aviation, there was corporate aviation, there was airlines, there was flight schools, there was every, there was mechanics, there was every aspect of women in all of these aviation role, roles, and there was no, no booth, no group, no nothing for airport management or women in airport executive roles. 
And I was kind of like, well, I feel a little bit left out <laughs> because, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm not working at the airport as a stepping stone to get a job at the airlines or to fund my flight training so that I can become a corporate pilot. And I, and a lot of people do that, which is great, but that's not, you know, that's not what I'm doing and, and not what I plan to do. So, you know, I, I have to, uh, I, I want that to, you know, kind of be more of a thing, more of a, have a larger role in, I think a, a lot of pilots, obviously airline pilots know it takes people to run those big airports they go in and out of, but a lot of people don't ever even think of that. You know, I've, how many airports have I been in and out of in my entire life, whether it's a small airport with an FBO or a, a large commercial service airport. And I never once thought, you know, there are people in charge of this place. Someone has to run this place. Someone has to make sure those runways are safe and that they're cleared of snow and debris. And someone has to make sure that all these airplanes don't run into each other, you know, taxiing around on the ramp. And someone has to make sure that, you know, um, the terminals run smoothly and that they make sense when they're laid out and that they get redesigned every once in a while. And, you know, I mean, I just never in my mind, none of those things cross my brain as something that people did and that's something that would be an option for me until I was 30 something years old so I, I hope that, to yeah. yeah sorry to cut you off but I think this is a no. great thing to talk about too because we do deal with a bunch of pilots in our dms who aren't able to fly anymore who don't get right. special issuances but they obviously still want to be involved in aviation aviation is a passion yeah. for them so if they can't fly for an airline this is such a great and it shouldn't even be called like a backup but i'm just thinking like for right. them, there are other avenues and this yeah. kind of opens their eyes to it and they can still be very involved um, and I love that you've gone to all of these conferences and that you're involved in your community. And I think that's one of the aspects that I think a lot of pilots also forget about is that there are ways to be involved in aviation in your local community. And mm -hmm. for you, it inspired you to become an airport manager because of it. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. So can you kind of touch on that, how you got involved? Like, what were the steps that you took to learn about, like, joining your aviation community and trying to get involved in that way like what would you tell other pilots if they were trying to look to get involved in their communities the places that they could look for those opportunities right and that this that's another question i get in my dms a lot too um especially for people who don't have a degree in aviation management i don't have a degree in aviation management a lot of people you know nowadays they go to college and they get a degree and then that leads to an internship which then leads to a job and that's wonderful and that's a great path and if you know that that's what you want to do i 100 percent recommend going to college because typically airport management jobs are going to want you to have a college degree. So if you know that that's what you want to do, I 100% recommend going to college for that. But if you don't, or if you decide to change careers in the middle of your life, like I did, then, you know, there's definitely other ways to um, learn. Even if you get a college degree, you're going to be learning on the job. Like everything you do, I don't care how many classes you took, you're, you're going to be yeah. learning Everything's on the job training. On training. Yep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like I said, it's all different at different airports anyway. So, um, yeah. but you know, I, I tell people that all the time that that is the number one thing I recommend is to, um, I'm sorry, hang on just a second. Uh, so sorry, I had, had yeah, a you're fine. <laughs> about my kid. Um, that's the number one thing that I tell people is the, the best first step you can take is to just show up at meetings. If you live in a state 
that your airport has any sort of a airport board or commission, um, find out when they meet because those should all be public open meetings. You should be able to come and sit in them and listen and learn. Um, if, you're air, if you live in a state that doesn't have a commission or a board of directors, then your airport will likely be run by your city council or your county commission. Show up to those meetings. Find out what's going on with your airport. Listen in, ask questions, get to know the people who are on the board or the commission or the city council or what have you, because those are the people, those are the connections that are going to make a difference in you potentially being able to get a job or uh, be more involved with your local airport. But even if you don't necessarily have a, 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 a want or a desire to um, get into airport management, I still recommend local pilots, especially if you spend a lot of time at your airport, it is really good for you to go to those meetings because that's how you find out what's going on. A lot of times pilots find out you know, through the grapevine or after the fact, well, they've made this decision to do such and such. And then it always becomes the airport manager's fault. Well, the airport manager, who's a, you know, grumpy old guy, usually um, from everybody's, you know, stereotypical perspective, <laughs> um, you know, decided to jack up the fuel prices. Can you believe it? Or, you know, they decided to jack the rent up or, you know, whatever it is. And there's usually a lot more thought that goes into things. And I mean, when, yeah. when decisions are made or, or things are voted on at our airport board meetings, a lot of times we've been talking about it in meetings for months before there was ever a decision made before anything was voted on or approved. And, you know, when we enter into lease agreements with businesses or, you know, we're getting a new fuel truck or whatever it is, those things have been combed over by the lawyer. We've gone over it frontwards and backwards, and there's been lots of back and forth discussions. So, you know, a lot of times people just see the result, but they don't see everything that goes into that and what it takes to make those decisions and to come to those conclusions and the decision to have to raise rent or the decision to have to raise fuel prices. Um, there's, there's a lot, you know, involved in all of that. And it's, I think it brings a little bit of perspective, even just for the local pilot to be able to see what all goes into um, safely and efficiently running an airport, because it's definitely not as easy as I think a lot of people think it is, and myself included, before I was involved. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. So. I, I could see how that could give you a completely new appreciation for what goes on behind the scenes and definitely like could make you a little bit more respectful at me as a student pilot. I've never been disrespectful, but hey, maybe I could right. make my smile just a little bit bigger because I right. am remembering all the things that Emily said about what goes on behind the scenes because I think it's important. I like my next question that I was going to ask you, I think it's funny because you kind of hit on like generally it is like the grumpy old man and you kind of do like place blame on the grumpy old man but nobody ever takes a step back and actually thinks about hey what goes into this job and I think we're guilty of that on a lot what of made levels. him so grumpy yeah what made him so grumpy just like <laughs> when fuel you, prices exactly just like when you go out to dinner and your food is taking a little bit longer people love to get right. angry about that but nobody thinks about what's going on behind the scenes so I, w I wanted to ask, like, because, and I hate to generalize, but most of the time it is an older man. Because of that, has there ever been a time that you felt like you weren't being treated equally or you weren't being respected on the same level as somebody else who, say, is an older man? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yes, there's definitely been times that I have um, felt disrespected 
in my position uh, because of being a woman or even being younger. And I mean, gosh, I, I'm certainly not young. Um, I'm 37. That's not young in the professional world. I'm not 25. But people who are in their 60s think 37 is super young. Or they yeah. see me and they think that I'm 25 or 30. They, you know, I, I had an airport board member actually last week. I said something about my birthday. It was a couple of weeks ago. And I said something about turning 37 and he just looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, you are not 37. <laughs> yeah, yes, I am. I was born in 1985. And he said, oh gosh. I said, how old did you think I was? He said, I didn't think you were older than 30. I'm like, okay. But it was, it was like, I could see the like light bulb in his eye. Like he was like, oh, maybe I should have given her a little bit more respect and not that yeah. this person disrespects me. He does not. But you know, it, it was kind of like, oh, you're that's seven more years of life that you've lived than I thought you had. That I could and, have given um, you a little bit more credit for. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. So anywho, but um, you know, that that's not even necessarily a case I would consider being disrespected, but um, I've definitely had, you know, I, I, we could, tell a story over a beer another time about a, a very specific situation I had actually when I was still the chairwoman of the board at the first airport I was involved with and um, had a, a gentleman who uh, ran a flight school and was the most horrible human being to me I have ever experienced. It was the most horrible situation I've ever encountered uh, with another human being. And um, I was young, I was a woman, and um, that was enough for him to know that I had no place and no business running the airport. He did not like that I had any authority, and he tried his darndest to take it all away from me. Um, mm -hmm. Thankfully, that didn't happen, but um, it was very... It was very trying on me. If we want to talk about mental health, my goodness, those were some hard days. I spent a lot of time in tears, um, just absolutely at my wits end of how to remedy the situation. Um, and for a long time, when, when this situation first started, I was on an airport board and always have been as the only woman on the board. Everyone else on the board was a man. And so when this situation first started and there was disagreements between me and this person, um, I did not feel comfortable and confident taking it to my other board members for fear, whether this was made up in my head or whether it was legitimate, I can't really say, but my fear was that they're just going to see me as a crazy woman. They're going to see me mm -hmm. as a crazy emotional woman because this guy has a lot of clout. He had a successful military career. He's very well-respected as a pilot and a flight instructor and yada, yada, yada. And here I come saying, hey, he's being horrible to me and no one's going to believe me. They're going to think I'm overreacting. They're going to think I'm just being silly or that I'm taking everything personally and I shouldn't be. Well, that's just how he is. He was a colonel. Da, 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 da. That's just, he's just kind of got that gruff personality, you know? And thankfully he showed himself enough to everybody that, you know, it didn't end up being that, but I was terrified to speak up at first because of that. Um, and I, that wouldn't have been the case had I been a man, but he wouldn't have treated me the way he treated me if I had been a man. Yeah, um, and he wouldn't have treated me as poorly. But yeah, anyhow, so I'm glad you pointed that out, though, because I think a lot of times as women, like we do think about that, like how are other people going to perceive us if we push back on someone who does have status and if mm -hmm. they are yep. a man 
us every day. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, seriously. And I'm sure all of us have, even on Instagram, we get like, oh, you didn't spell this right, or you didn't do this right, you didn't do that right, or you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) All the time. I can do fab work better than you. Like, you know, those types of things, I don't think men truly understand that they are insidious. Over time, we start to question our own selves Mm -hmm. and wonder, like, are we being petty or not tough Mm -hmm. enough? Sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that does, like you said, it it weighs on your mental health to have those types of things happen. And this older man probably had no idea the type of um, stress he was putting upon you when he did this, but this happens to women all the time. And so I think sharing these stories, it's kind of, Emma and I ask this for women all the time. Like we want people to share their stories to know, like we're not, we know how it is, how it feels. And, and we hope that men hear our message and that, you know, it's not okay to do that. Like just because mm-hmm. we're women doesn't make us any less. Like we know what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the, the great thing that happened in that situation for me too was um, after this gentleman was no longer um, able to run his business on our airfield because of a few things he had done, he had he actually came back one night to turn something in at the end of a board meeting and caught me in the doorway um, and spoke so terribly to me and two of my board members were there and witnessed it. And that was the first time they had ever actually witnessed him speak to me like that, you know? And I think it was one of those eye-opening moments for them. Like, they're like, okay, wow. we like, we believed her. And because he was actually horrible to everybody else too, just not me, but I don't think they understood the extent of how he was to me. Like they didn't really believe that he was as, you know, disrespectful to me as I was saying that he was because a lot of the interactions that I had with him were no one else was around. And so um, I started, of course, refusing to meet with him alone ever uh, because of that. But, um, you know, it was so after that, it was like kind of gratifying because they were like, dude, we totally see what you've been going through. And we're so sorry that we didn't like see it before now, you know, how bad it was. So and good for you on like standing up and and sticking to it, you know, like you could have totally just like swept it under the rug and kept dealing with that, but you didn't. Um, and that yeah. really does take a lot of courage, I think, to do. Hey, just just to FYI, I'm going to have to go in about six minutes. I've got a parent-teacher conference at 5.30. So I'm sorry to be no um, to, to rush at all, but I wanted to let you know that. So I didn't do that in five minutes from now. <laughs> no worries. Do you want to do, do these fun questions really quick? I think we can yeah. knock them out in five. Absolutely. All right, Maddie, you want to start? Yeah. So, okay. We're getting into fun questions just to kind of get to know you on a a fun, fun level. So first question I have is what brand of tennis shoes do you wear? Are you like Nikes, Adidas, or do you have like a specific shoe that you love to wear? So in airport management, it is all about comfort. Um, I'm on my feet a lot and I, on a daily basis, am wearing my New Balances. I don't know if that makes me a dad. Um, oh, or totally a does. Mom, you I know? was like, oh my god. <laughs> they're they're not so white, good. so they're not they're not the typical dad shoes. But um, I, the, they're just the most comfortable shoes that I have found, um, tennis shoes wise, that I I enjoy. So they're they're black, so they're cool. Um, but they're new balances. Yeah. So I, I wear those on a daily basis. Now in the wintertime, I wear boots. I have some Timberland boots that I wear, um, pretty much every day, um, that are like 
kind of cute, but also functional and comfortable to be on my feet all day and trudging around and whatever terrain I need to be in. So, oh yeah, Emma, what can, what about you? you vans, to? vans off the wall every single Fine. day, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that cool. No, I've lately no. I've been wearing um my Chucks that I just got my Converse. I just got they're mm. like they're called the hiking boot. I think it's oh. just like the style. They're a little thicker and they're so comfortable. Yeah. Um, but normally I used to wear chucks all the time. I haven't yeah, in years. This is literally my first pair of, of Converse. Like I've never had what? before. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> That's all I wore in college, I think. <laughs> oh my I gosh. I don't know how I've never had Converse, but yeah, they're my first pair. I love them. So now I'm probably going to have 15 pairs. Yep. Every color. <laughs> but yeah. Um, anyways, otherwise you find me in Nikes cause I'm totally like Nikes girl. Nikes are made in Oregon. And I was gonna say you live in the the northwest, right? Yes, so you kind of have the to wear Pacific Northwest, and I literally live like uh, thirty minutes from a Nike like outlet mall. So all it is nice. is Nikes discounted. So I have so many because of that. But also basketball, Emily. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. I was. I've worn my fair share of Nikes for sure. Yeah, I was like, girl, you had to wear some Nikes because we were both oh, are yeah. basketball players, which I love. Yeah. Um, okay, so next question, and I only have a few more minutes. Uh, what's your favorite American chocolate candy bar? Um, I don't know if this technically counts as a candy bar, but Reese's peanut butter cups are my favorite candy bar ish type candy. I actually don't like any other candy bar. Um, I'm not a candy person. I'm not really a chocolate person. And the only peanut butter I will ever eat is inside of Reese's peanut butter cup. So Mm. that's, that's my go-to candy. You're not like a peanut butter fan, but only inside Reese's. yep okay (laughs) and only the like regular sized ones or the specialty like the eggs or the christmas trees or whatever like i don't like the minis i don't know the chocolate to peanut butter ratio is off on those so don't come at me with so picky yeah oh gosh i'm picky about everything when it comes to food (laughs) i'm not picky um but i'm not really a huge like chocolate bar fan honestly like I'm not that's just not my thing but if I have to pick a candy bar it would be Butterfinger oh my god I love Butterfingers oh my brother's yes yeah Uh, (laughs) I think because my mom loves Butterfinger like she passed that on to me and so I really like them too or like the the Chico sticks I like that like crunchy thing I don't know what it is what about you Emma God, I like, I like the Butterfinger, Heath Bar, Kit Kat, white chocolate, anything, white chocolate, Kit Kat, white chocolate, Reese's, because I, I, there is no favorites. I love Almond Joys. Like, people hate Almond Joys. I love an Almond Joy. I I actually like Almond Joys. Like, don't put chocolate in front of my face because I'm an idiot. Okay. (laughs) You're going to devour it. Yes. Yes. I'll start sending all of my candy to you then. I love mind. candy. It's bad. I've recently developed a sweet tooth, like with age. Um, but yeah, <laughs> Oof, sheesh. Them hormones be changing. When you yep. talk more. Shout out the low low. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> okay, last question, uh, Emily. If you're going to a fair, what type of fair food are you going to be getting? Now, this is the place where I'm not going to be picky. Um, <laughs> other than like I don't want caramel apples like don't come at me with fruit um but 
I like all the fair food nachos, nachos with chicken, nachos with mm. pork, like mm-hmm. uh, any type of nachos, cheesy nachos, jalapeno nachos, like I'm all about the nachos, um, hot dogs, corn dogs, cotton candy. I mean, yes. yeah, I give me a you concession stand and a fair and I'm in heaven and I'm also in a blood pressure situation the next day but yeah um, and I was gonna ask you in Kentucky do they do like a bunch of like fried like any food fried so like do they have like fried Oreos okay. fried or... Twinkies fried Oreos oh, yeah. oh we God, used to yes. I used to serve t- fried Oreos at the school dance at the middle school I worked at we would spend all afternoon when we had oh, dances nice. making fried Oreos at their middle school <laughs> so yes That's we like amazing. fried foods here I know. I was thinking, like, I bet the Kentucky Fair is totally different from freaking Washington. And oh, I'm sure. Pacific yeah. Northwest. I'm sure it's very different. But you know, we can get down at the fair here too. Um, <laughs> there, like where I live in the Pacific Northwest, there's a lot of like farm country here too, mm-hmm. um, which people don't usually think of, but there is. Um, so I literally just went to the fair like a couple months ago with um, my husband Jesse and one of our friends. But I got. What we get? We got like fried donuts. Um, and I think I got cotton candy too. But you typically I'm a I will get cotton candy. Like that was like the biggest obsession for me when I was little. I was like, gotta have cotton candy. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm like, it, it's just sugar and you just like stuff sugar in your mouth, but mm. just in a different form, you know. <laughs> I love it. I love all the things. I have to agree with Emily. I'm taking everything, but if I have to get one thing specifically, <laughs> it's the I know they do this. They have to do this in Kentucky because it's this other thing. It's not a low like Mexican corn, but it's just like a corn that's like roasted, like no seasonings yeah. oh, yeah. on it, and they have like a array sure. of seasonings. So I always yep. do a Ooh. crap ton of lemon and lemon pepper seasoning. I'm not leaving the fair without yep. that, and my mouth is actually watering now. <laughs> But so, nice. do they do like a lote at the fair though? Cause I don't know if that's like a Washington thing. Cause there's a lot large, like Hispanic influence here, but there's always a lote at the fair. Here. They, they don't here, but I will say <coughs> recently they are like at the state fair. They def they're doing it now, but at the, see, I always grew up going to the County fair and at the County fair, it was just the, the concessions that came with the rides. So there wasn't much like, influence it was always the same um but i know now they're starting to do it a little bit more which it is busting yeah it is so good so good love it hey i'm probably gonna get a phone call here in any time now from my son's teacher so i gotta wrap it up i'm sorry all right emily thank you so much for joining us and your plug is at emily emily at the airport right yes yeah at emily at the airport yes that's me thank you so much for having me i loved coming on here to talk to you guys Thank All you. right. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. Thanks.